Hello, I'm Natalie here with Twice Removed, a fortnightly history chat show where we delve into all sorts of different types of history. Um, I'm a family historian by trade and I'm really passionate about writing your ancestors' stories and I think the best way to do that is to learn as much about all different types of history as possible. So I'm just going to bring in my guest today who is a historian of emotions. His name's Matthew Roberts and I will let him introduce himself because that's the bit that I always mess up. So all my guests are much better at introducing themselves than I am uh, introducing them. <laughs> Hi Matthew. Hi, good evening everybody. Great to Hi. be with you. Um, so you. yeah, I'm, I'm Matt Roberts. Um, I work on um, history of protest, popular politics, political history, and I've always been looking for new ways of trying to make um, the study of, of politics and the past more generally um, accessible, um, exciting, not not saying I always succeed at these things, um, and I've always tried to kind of um, tailor my research to um, interesting things that are kind of going on, not just within history, but um, across the humanities, um, more recently psychology, neuroscience, again, I can't say I'm an expert on those things, but they've been invaluable for writing the history of emotions. Um, and I've been I have been surprised actually how much that has shed new and interesting light for me on the study of the Victorians and the Georgians. Um, so that and that that's what I'm here to talk to you about tonight. Brilliant! Excited. I can't I can't wait. I first discovered you when I stumbled across a article that you'd written about a um, and I won't give too much away because we might touch on it later. But a, 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 an emotion, a German emotion that we don't have really have the equivalent of and I was just fascinated by this idea that you know emotions could exist in one culture and not exist in another and and, mm. and then therefore could exist in the past and not exist in the present um it's kind of a hard thing to get your head around but before, is, before yeah. I delve in could, would you mind giving an overview of kind of what what exactly is the history of emotions what do we what do we kind mm. of mean or define that as so I think actually the point you just made there is a really important starting point that emotions um, are culturally and temporally specific. And what we mean by that is that some cultures have one way of expressing feelings. They have different words for feelings. They sometimes, by definition, have different emotions if we don't have words for them. Um, and it's just this idea, really, that something that we think is a constant, um, emotions are part of being human, um, in actual fact, when you when you delve into it, and this was the big surprise for me actually, because I remember starting this and thinking, surely anger is the same now as it as it was a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, or across the globe. But in actual fact, that that's not really the case. Um, so emotions have a history, um, in the sense that they've changed, and what cultures uh, prioritize. Um, and I think the 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 other thing I would really emphasize that 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 history of emotions is about to me is looking at what I'd call feeling rules. So in any given society, um, in any given political culture, whatever you want to call it, there are sets of feeling rules about what is acceptable, um, okay. what kind of emotions you should, you should display or not. Um, one of the big fictions, I would say, bringing this to, to sort of the areas I've been working on, one of the big fictions of of modern politics, it seems to me, is be is this idea that politics is an arena of reason and emotions have no place in that, or at least they ought not to. 
Um, and, you know, there's always a kind of outrage and emotion. If, if someone displays the wrong kind of emotions uh, in, in, in a kind of political culture, and it's that sort of um, thing that interested me, really, um, the way that emotions get politicised. Um, so for a lot of the protesters that I look at, radicals, reformers, democratic campaigners, um, once I started looking at um, this from the lens of the history of emotions, um, it struck me just how much what they were campaigning for was a right to kind of express their feelings in some ways. Or it was about saying, look, we have the full range of emotions, just like you, the elite, um, and therefore we are just as uh, capable of, of being citizens. Because one of the ways historically elites have tried to exclude um, a lot of people, it might be working class people, it might be women, it might be people of certain skin colours, is to say, oh, these people are either creatures of their emotions, i.e. They're, they're kind of too emotional, or somewhat paradoxically, um, they are kind of um, brutish and animal-like and, and sort of uh, numb almost. Um, and it just struck me again and again how all of these key moments in in Britain's journey towards democracy, um, the Reform Acts, were, were often elite people standing up and saying, oh, well, these people don't have the right kinds of emotions or they don't know how to um, to kind of express themselves or they, they're not rational. That, that's a favourite one, of course. And we, we still we all use that in our conversations and we use that as a weapon against people. Oh, you're not being rational. Um, yeah, and I think particularly against women. I think that's that's had a yeah. has a long history. And you know, yeah. thinking of sort of Victorian hysteria and yeah, and that kind of stuff. And I think the other, the other thing that I quickly realised was that when people do things in the name of reason and rationality, um, there's usually emotion behind it as well. Um, they might pretend that there isn't. Um, but or it's a way of shutting down kind of emotions, or it's using emotions to to pin people back into um, the box that that people want them pinned back into. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It makes complete sense. That's really interesting. So, um, when we talk about emotions now, what I'm guessing that most of our ancestors in the past wouldn't have used the word emotions until no. fairly recently either. So, what what would they have? I don't know, maybe starting in kind of Georgian period, what would they yeah. have called emotions and what would they what would they consider them to be, if you know what I mean? Or how, how did they think they were made? Or... Yeah. So that, again, that's a really important point that it's important to look at the language that people use in the past. And um, when history of emotions started to take off 20 years ago and even sort of as late as 10 years ago, um, there'd been a recognition that the word that was used before the late 19th century was the passions. That, in some respects, was the, the kind of similar portmanteau term that we have when we use the word emotion. But actually, again, the more research that was done, people were saying, ah, passions aren't the same as emotions. And um, then there were obviously a debate with people saying, oh, it's just semantics. It's just kind of, you know, it's a different word for the same thing. But actually, it's not. Um, and the best way to that, that helped me ex make sense of this was um, the work of a colleague at um, Queen Mary in London, Thomas Dixon, who essentially traced that transition in language from the passions to emotions. And 
what that revealed was that over the course of yeah roughly the long 19th century um i like long i like the long 19th century by which i mean you know 1780 to 1914 um where people seated feelings in their body changed fundamentally or where people thought feelings in their body were changed so um roughly late 18th century people thought that um emotions passion sorry um were located um in their body um in the heart you know some of these still survive heartbroken um historically longer than that people thought that feelings uh certain feelings came from the liver spleen you know, all those kind of venting so spleen of, that kind almost of, going back to the four humors kind of yeah idea. Okay. yeah but then by the late 19th century emotions have kind of as it were come upwards and now they're located in their head which is where they still largely are at i would say in the way that psychologists uh, make sense of them they're in the mind um and in that shift um I think the way that people experienced feeling and what it meant to them changed. Um, and the modern period in, in many respects has been one that has closed down in a number of ways, I think, the, the sort of emotional liberty or freedom that, that people have, um, you know, without getting kind of Foucauldian and you know post-structuralist and everything's closing down and none of us have agency I, I, there is you can trace a similar kind of story there with with what's acceptable and I suppose the last key the last real moment it seems to me where demonstrating intense feeling and that being valid was the romantics um, of, of which of course there's still endless fascination with um, there's Simon Sharma's program I noticed is rerunning on BBC Four, The Desperate Romantics with Aidan Turner in, a, a, aka Poldark, you know, <laughs> pre-Raphaelites. You know, so people trillion. are still really <laughs> interested in this. Um, and I think that's the last cultural moment where um, emotions were, were king. Uh, and that was fine. And it was good to be allowed to go off and express them in, in whatever way you want. Whereas I think more recent times has been that kind of closing down yeah it's interesting actually because as you were talking i was i was thinking about the um i was thinking about novels and i was thinking about um uh like wuthering heights and that kind of extreme of emotion where he uh, yeah. where the, the body gets dug up doesn't it? i can't remember whether it's heathcliff or kathy's body now that gets dug up and um yeah it must be kathy's and uh, and that kind of and i know a lot of people really don't like wuthering heights because of that because they think it's kind of hyper emotional and i appreciate it's it's a kind of gothic novel yeah um trope but that that kind of like heightened emotion does run through a lot of 19th century yeah. um literature so do you think being more emotional or more passionate was more um acceptable or maybe accept uh either accept acceptable or expected um in the past than it is now i, th I think so yes um i mean the gothic which you mentioned which is one lens i use actually in the book because that 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 kind of um genre emerges as, as part of, it's kind of the dark cousin of romanticism isn't it the gothic but it is that exploration of intense feeling as you say um but that in itself of course was a reaction to the perceived sterility of the age of reason the enlightenment which was all about in caricature terms it was all about reason and rationality and you start to start to get kind of key cultural figures philosophers 
novelists who react against that. Rousseau would be a good example, continental terms of someone who'd been all about reason. And then he has this epiphany moment and kind of goes, mm, actually, if we just focus on reason, as the Enlightenment does, then that is only a really narrow segment of what it means to be human. You could all end uh, up as Daleks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and there, there are some, there's some discussions in the 19th century about automata, mm. um, and obviously that that has run and run um, into some pretty dark places. Thinking of yeah, recesses yeah. of the internet and things, but yeah, that's but that that is a real kind of concern. It's in Frankenstein. Um, what happens if um, you know we're just machines? Is that yeah, the kind of, I was thinking of Hoffman's that, The Sandman. Yeah. Which is yeah. loving machine, isn't it? It's, yeah, that fear. It's, yeah. It's but just at the moment where <laughs> I think there is more openness to, oh, yeah, great, let's recognize feeling and let, let's let's put, give that free reign, you then start to get major upsets like the French Revolution, which is seen as this is what happens when feelings are unleashed and run amok. Um, and that's bad. Um, and I think that that's the beginning there of, of some of those stereotypes we have of, of the 19th century of sober men dressed in black, serious. Um, so these things go in cycles. So I would probably qualify to some extent what I said about, oh, we've gone from emotional freedom, yay, to, you know, they, they do very much go in cycles. And it's part of those feeling rules that I mentioned. So some cultures um, value certain emotions. Um, I think the if people are still struggling, as I did for a long time, with this idea that emotions are culturally specific, um, there's been some great research done where um, there's a series of uh, images of faces and you have to kind of say what emotion is being expressed. And you very quickly then get into the fact that what we might see as a smile in our culture means something completely different in another. So the way that the body... Um, expresses emotion, if you like, is also very different. Um, and yeah, as you say, we've, we've, I mean, some, yeah, some historians have said, oh, we've lost certain emotions. And one of the ones they talk a lot about is something called acedia, um, which is a Greek term and kind of means listlessness, um, lethargy, kind of uninterestedness, sloth. Um, but it, of course, w when you start doing those, um, synonyms you kind of think well we still do have those feelings now but i think the point that's been made is that the value that was once placed on acedia in this case um is no longer there and and other historians have said similar things about honor so if you think about medievalism honor chivalry so, i mean again you kind of think well there are people who still demonstrate honorable behavior but the the, the kind of cultural prestige if you like that's put on that term it is no longer as prominent as it once was i mean you know look these days it's you, i won't get too political with this but i watched a certain documentary recently where um a politician had resigned this was about 20 years ago and these days you just, i just thought oh how quaint someone actually kind of you know for the honor and the i had to resign but now you know no, no one bothers with that and i think that illustrates that point that we no longer value honor as, as highly perhaps um, we perhaps we value ambition more yeah yeah exactly it's about getting on it's about and it's the emotions that come with that of you know thrustingness and 
um, even a, I guess a certain kind of um, anger and determination and yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting thought, definitely. My mind was going going bananas there in the background, like a little hamster on a wheel. I was actually I was thinking of the Danish word. Um, oh, I can never say it. It's spelled H Y G G. Is it Huggy? 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 He's like yeah, cozy, like yeah. Uh, but it doesn't really translate into into English. But it it yeah, obviously it's a cultural thing. But it, there's an emotion attached to that. So I can kind of I can kind of even a modern day example see what you mean yeah. um so when we're talking about um obviously you've mentioned about like the, the kind of the language changing so does the history of emotions i'm taking it quite closely intersects with linguistics and psychology yeah kind of the big overlap yeah it does it does well i was going to say it does for me it does for yeah i would say there has been a just a, like a within history generally there has been a move away from language and discourse and i i am not as comfortable with that because that i grew up at a time where it was postmodernism you paid attention to language there was a, a very fruitful dialogue between history and english literature which i i still kind of like to see preserved um, but there has been a reaction to oh god is everything just about discourse and text and the history of emotions in part it was a response to that a bit like we, what we were saying with the Enlightenment, I think a lot of scholars kind of thought there's more to this than just the tussle of words. What about feeling? Um, but of course, again, well, okay, yeah, let's do feeling, but how do you access that without looking very closely at language? Um, yeah, I was just going to say, actually, what is the most difficult thing about looking at emotions in the past? Because surely, surely in some ways you can only analyse emotions from the past by relating them to your own emotions now. Yeah. So I can imagine that's quite dangerous as well. So, yeah, yeah. so, so oh, sorry, preempting your answer. <laughs> what no, what no, do that, you think that, are the most kind of difficult fine. things? I think so. My having said that, okay, they, things were different in the past, they had different emotions. I think it's perfectly fine as a starting point to kind of to put a label on on what it is you're you're reading about um okay this this is anger this is this is uh depression this is anxiety and but i think that has to be the beginning point rather than the end point um because the more you pursue it the more you might kind of find it means something different um so to give you a very concrete example i was struck by how chartists uh, democratic campaigners for rights for working class people in the 1830s and 40s um who make it into all the textbooks you know they want things like universal manhood suffrage etc but god they spend a lot of their time in in print and talking to one another being what i thought was angry angry oh my god they're angry um, and to some extent, I, you know, before I got into history of emotions, I thought, oh, well, that, that's just been part of the political left. You know, people are always angry. Um, but actually, I, I suddenly realized that when I looked very closely at where their anger, anger was directed, actually meant a lot of other different things. Um, so they were really angry towards someone who had once supported them, but then betrayed them. So then you start and scratch beneath the surface. Think, okay, well, this this is about honour. This is about shame. This is about disgust. Uh, this is about rage, which is a more intense form of anger. Um, and 
yeah it, so it's that point of trying to begin with something that you think looks familiar but if the sources allow and that, that's a big caveat obviously then uh, you've got to pursue it and you've got to then think okay right i need to do a bit of reading around here and think what were the feeling rules at this time what was acceptable and what wasn't um and i think really useful as well is um the work that i mean history of emotions i should say is not um limited to british history and indeed a lot of the seminal foundational texts were from the histories of other countries particularly french history so the historian william reddy was really the kind of trendsetter here wrote a book called the navigation of feeling and although that's been superseded in lots of ways the kind of the terminology the, the baggage the conceptual framework that he established in that I think a lot of it is endured. So things like emotional regimes, which is what I mean by feeling rules, okay. um, or emotional refuge, as he talks about, spaces that are created by people where they can express the emotions that wider society prevents them from doing so, whether for political reasons of repression or, um, you know, being a minority. Um, you know, you think about the sort of the gay scene would be a more modern way and um that in the 1980s and 90s and a lot of what sort of gets dismissed as camp you know but that is partly in partly about um gay people creating that space where they can not just be comfortable with their sexuality but can also be comfortable expressing the kinds of feelings that they want as well um because so, if you think about a lot of the stuff i'm going off on a tangent here now no about, do it's really interesting you know, gay, but, <laughs> you know it's, it's like oh i don't like camp and, and obviously some gay people say that as well but what they mean by that largely is they don't like the set of feelings that come with that particular label or um and obviously that's partly bound up with as i say a large part of the gay scene that was created in the 80s and before that and beyond has been about creating those spaces where certain feelings can be expressed and um, that is largely denigrated or um, not allowed in, in kind of dominant heterosexual culture. Um, so that's another thing I would say. What, don't, or don't underestimate how things on the surface might look like having nothing whatsoever to do with the history of emotions. But I mean, it's partly now because I've, I've been bitten by the bug. So you see it everywhere. <laughs> um and and obviously that's that's kind of what you do you get hold of a lens history of emotions and a bit like a kaleidoscope you turn it and everything looks kind of completely different and um and that, you, you might kind of think well this is all very well but i think a large part of power and, and the example i just mentioned there about gay gay culture and the gay scene is a large part about power it goes back to that issue i started with that um, people always want to draw boundaries around what is acceptable in terms of feelings and what isn't and who gets to express those feelings and who doesn't. Um, yeah, it made me think of um, uh, pub culture and um, uh, kind of these small community, small knit uh, kind of community pubs that you get. Um, I, I was actually thinking of some... Um, ancestors that I have that lived on Latimer Road in, in, in London and I came across a news report about a, a tax collector who tried to come in 
and collect taxes and all the residents basically said no we're not paying them because we're sick of the the bad state of the roads this is like in 1880s and it kind of it all got out of hand and culminated in the the landlord getting a gun out and um and and threatening to not let the tax inspector out <laughs> we promised never to come back again and you Correct. know but there was yeah it was brilliant it's brilliant read it's one of my favorite stories i yeah, tell yeah. it all the time but i also read i also read another story recently about a um uh, a board of guardians meeting and um and they were arguing about um accounts and why certain costs had gone up and um and they would be like you know we were saying like oh we've got 50 extra loaves and some guy was going well yes but we've got like three extra people and if they're all eating x amount of bread then that quite quickly adds up to 50 loaves of, you know and you could almost you could almost hear the eye you know almost see the eye roll in the, in the writing and again yeah. that escalated and got all out of hand and all these guardians ended up in a in it falling out and um it, it almost almost ended up in fisticuffs but there was obviously something about that space that they were in that even though these are you know semi-respectable i know a publican might not be but but could be could be pushing yeah, up yeah. could yeah. be pushing up the ranks potentially yeah, more yeah. so yeah. than a than a, than a laborer that's struggling you know um but they had that space where they could not only talk as a community but perhaps express some of those frustrations i don't know i'm yeah, just um, thinking out loud really <laughs> and i think that's why so much of uh, i mean again so much of working class protests that i look at the chartists the luddites machine breakers it takes place in pubs the planning of it the discussing the discussing of it the venting of the feelings it takes place in pubs because that is I mean, to, I guess to some extent that that is what Reddy would mean by an emotional refuge. A pub is an emotional refuge, provided it's obviously within a working class community, and mm. um, you know, be very. But you different. do when you're even now when you're walking when you live somewhere a long time, you you might and you have a couple of pubs. You know which one's yours and which one might not be. Like yeah. you just do, don't you? It's just kind of yeah. So it must yeah. So I, I'm guessing it would be like that in the past. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, so can you think of like when you're thinking about lost emotions to me that's like the hardest thing to get your head around that mm. how do you know an emotion's been lost is it is it just the language or is it they've splintered out into other things or is, is there some emotions that we just literally just do not have anymore that we don't recognize at all I, yeah i i don't know so I, yeah we as I said, you you kind of often say, "Oh, we've got lost emotions." History's you know lost emotions, but as we just did a while ago, you scratch beneath the surface of those, and sort of vestiges of them live on, or they might not be as as prioritised anymore as they once were. But um, but what I would say, where language is really important, and this brings in neuroscience, and I think I, I'm probably it's fair to say part of of a group within the history of emotions who looks more to neuroscience than psychology. And, and I wouldn't put it this strongly, but some in my camp would, that psychology has been damaging for history of emotions. And, and within that statement is also a, a comment about psychology in the here and now as well. Okay. Um, and I just, let me unpack that a little bit. So th the problem with a lot of psychology as, as my tribe would see it, is that it essentializes the human condition and that it, it would sort of, you know, they'd be raising eyebrows tonight with the discussion going, no, sort of anger is anger. 
Um, there might be sort of a little bit of difference in the way it gets expressed, but the human condition is essential. And it was the same in ancient Greece as it is today. Um, will allow a little bit of cultural variation, but not very much. Um, and it, it, I think for me also, for someone who struggled with, with serious mental health issues over over the years, is that a lot of it is is bound up with individualizing as well. So if you think about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, it's hard not to kind of look at that in neo sort of liberal uh, capitalist terms of the onus is put on the individual. There's something wrong with you. And if you do these little exercises, which, you know, work for everybody because you're human, then you'll be fine. Whereas neuroscience, by contrast, started to, particularly with the advent of what's called neuroplasticity. And although that sounds really kind of off-putting, what that means is that culture writes the brain. So when we talk about things like feeling rules and the use of particular words, when people engage in those things and do it habitually, it actually starts to change the way the brain works. Um, it re so in other words, culture rewrites your brain. Um, That's a fascinating idea. And and what's been really unusual and brilliant, I think, for those of us in the arts and humanities is that there's this this unusual um, synergy with science, which you know is always kept separate. Science, arts, humanities—you know, not in Germany where history is a science—but we'll leave that one for now. Um, but yeah, so this idea that culture rewrites the brain and that you do something—I mean, we know this. You think, oh yeah, of course, if you do something repetitively, new kind of neural pathways form, um, and it, and it sort of starts to condition your behaviour. Um, whereas, change the culture and the way that your brain works and operates changes. Um, so it's been much more open, I think, to this idea that things are culturally specific. Um, and it's nice to have that, I guess, validated by um, by science, pretty high level science, certainly much of which I don't understand. And I, I kind of pick it up by other people who, who really have done wonders at trying to almost retrain themselves as neuroscientists as well as being historians but um i don't have those those pathways in my brain and no amount of culture will, will change that i think but, um, that but that yeah. does bring to mind your your german example actually which i think is a really good example if you wouldn't mind explaining it it was the um the uh, i i read it as like a fatigue of history like a fatigue at looking at history acedia no, yeah, it's, I don't. I can't remember what the word was. I remember reading your article, and it was about um, a emotion that that has a name in Germany, but doesn't have a name, like doesn't have an equivalent here. And oh, like was, Wunderlust or something. Yeah, yeah, not, there not was that, Wunderlust, but, but I think it yeah. was yeah, and I think it was about a general, a kind of a fatigue of looking back, a fatigue of looking at history, um, which I yeah. thought was really interesting. Um, I've forgotten what I've written now. <laughs> Just thrown you, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get kind of distracted if I start going it. into my uh, files no, now. No, and try don't and find it. Files. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. I yeah. can move on. We can come back to it. <laughs> I can come back to it in my notes. I'll, I'll, I'll link to the article and remind you. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And um, so, um, so we talked about lost emotions. What about um, new emotions then? Because obviously our culture has changed a yeah. lot um, in the time. Does that mean we've got potentially got new emotions that we that we could be at risk of 
uh, imposing upon the past. Yeah, I, you know, I'd not really thought about it from that direction. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's always the problem with... So one of the real tensions with being a historian, whether you're a family historian or academic historian, doesn't matter, that is always this sort of... I think it's part of the human condition to immediately look for the similarities. And, and that is, that's a key building block about how we interpret the past, isn't it? Similarities and differences, change and continuity. Um, but we have to be careful that we don't, it's the dangers of presentism, I guess it used to be called. Uh, we, we read the past in light of the present. And it's one of those things that trotted out much like, that you know those awful answers about who oh, why do you study history oh so we don't repeat the same mistakes of the past that's not true history people repeat the same mistakes all the time it doesn't invalidate the study of history it just invalidates that as the only reason yeah, given sure. for, for looking at the past um but yeah it's like what i said with the language there's nothing wrong with sort of that similarity but yeah, I guess one of one of my pet peeves as a historian is is and a lot of tv history does this is to go, ooh, they were just like us. Victorians were just like us. The Georgians were just like us. The ancient Greeks were just like us. And that's not true. And I know why why that's done. We all know why that's done. It's that it's that hook. You know, how do you get somebody interested? Um and as a starting point, point of departure, that's fine, provided it's not the end destination, as I say, that it's the beginning then of of you looking at um at the past um and i think yeah it's really nice to kind of um to talk to a whole different range of historians um family historians that i don't kind of talk to as much as i once did because it's been two years since i've been in an archive um and i miss those kind of chats really um where you see just how enthusiastic people are about not just their ancestors but the kind of period and they, they are interested i think in the wider cultural um the, yeah, the wider culture, including the oh, feeling very rules. Much so. Yeah, yeah, no, very much so. I think, uh, uh, like, especially um, so. I run a membership club called the Curious Descendants Club, and we're um, it's all about writing your family history. Um, but but I, it, a, a really big part of that is when we're writing is trying to understand the past and understand why our ancestors may have behaved in the way that they did or made mm. the decisions that they made or, or what they might have felt about the things that happened to them and yeah. how that may have kind of trickled down the generations potentially and that's um, or, not, or not or not you know yeah, yeah no it definitely is and it it doesn't come with like black and white answers at all no no um, and it's really hard to because obviously most of the people i've been writing about are working class people the vast majority of whom do not leave nice little records for the benefit of me you and family historians professional historians so it's hard sometimes you know it's much easier i think to do a history of emotions project if if you've got millions of letters and diaries so more elite people but it's not impossible i would say to to do a bottom-up ordinary kind of people's history of emotions um and i think the way you can access that sometimes is is perhaps through actions not just language um i think the phrase you used there was interesting the way our ancestors behaved um why are they behaving in a certain way well it may be that they're not allowed to behave in that that way. Oftentimes, in that place, they're not allowed to feel that way. 
um, oftentimes because they're part of a culture that says, oh, working class people don't have any feelings or they do, then they're more kind of brutish. That was a favourite word that, that was used. They're brutish. Um, either they're creatures of their passions or they don't feel. So either way, they're not fully human. Um, so what a surprise that sometimes people rebel against that by, yeah, demonstrating a lot of feeling or a um, difficult behaviour as it might be seen at the time. Yeah, it's an interesting, wasn't it? Because I, funny enough, I've just been running a writing challenge about reclaiming. It was called Reclaim Jane, and um, and it's still open if anyone wants to join. <laughs> but it was a five day challenge, and uh, it was basically about trying to write about an ancestor that that was kind of hidden or mistreated or didn't have a voice of some sort within their own lifetime. And I, I was inspired to write, to to run it by uh, one of my ancestors who had a, a an illegitimate baby. And the father of her baby, she was a servant and the father of her baby was a wealthy man. But what I find really interesting about her is that she she put this rather aristocratic um, surname of his in as a middle name of her baby's name. And to me, it's almost as if she was waving a big red flag going, look, kind of thing. But I'm also conscious that I I obviously put my own emotional interpretation on that event. But there must have been a reason why she put that name in there and that it passed down several generations and that the story, despite this being in 1841, was still talked about and known about within my own family. And that's, yeah. that's you know, almost 100 years later. No, more than 100 yeah. years later, almost 200 years later, which mm. is incredible. So it was garbled and it had got misconstrued, and but the, but the, the grain of mm. it was there. And then I met a, a second cousin through tracing my family history who had heard the same story so it passed down her line as well which I thought mm. was incredible so yeah I, I personally I think you can look at your ancestors and try and um, look for those little emotional clues um, but I'm also conscious that it doesn't come without risk if you know what I mean <laughs> no no and I think one of the things that makes it easier for me is that because I look at radicals and protesters, by definition, I'm looking at people who step outside and very publicly step outside. So they speak in court, they speak at political meetings and rallies. They do write letters, and maybe not very many of them, maybe not as literate as elite people at the time, but there are other sources there. But yeah, how do you write the history of emotions of normal person who, as far as we know, and of course, that's an important caveat because the census and all the however sophisticated the sources that we now have are, it's only a snapshot, really, of someone's life a lot of the time, isn't it? But yeah, how do you write the history of emotions for somebody when it looks like they led a pretty ordinary, boring life? Does, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how often that is discovered. I think it doesn't take, having done a bit of family history, there's always some juicy skeletons in the closet somewhere of one form or another. But. There is, and I always say that if you if you have like hundreds of years of agricultural labourers all living in the same village, all doing the same job for generations, then that in itself is still a story because they obviously made yeah. the decision to stay yeah. at some point. It's the is the example I always use, but yeah, that is kind of hard to put a to put an emotion on. Yeah, without, and I think again, without using your imagination, but then yeah, maybe that's okay as long as you're fine. aware. As long as you're stating that's what you're doing i guess yeah and all yeah. historical knowledge is provisional absolutely um but again i don't think tv history helps us here i mean i, I hear the inside because I, I know somebody who has been on 
uh, who do you think you are as a historical consultant, as a historian, as a talking head? And she said, oh, yeah, there's loads of instances where they've they've started off doing somebody and then they've gone, oh, yeah, you're just you're, your ancestors are just too boring. So we're not going to pursue this. And I think oh, that's a real shame because, one, that's probably more representative. Um, two, I think there's something nice about, particularly if it is a celebrity, Real, you know that historically they are ordinary, just like us. People, people want that connection with celebrities, don't they? As much as they want to put them on a pedestal, at the same time, it's the back to that. Oh, they're just like us. Um, and yeah, I think it, it sensationalizes the past as well, doesn't it? That unless they were, you know, protesters or did something out of the ordinary, then they're not really worthy of historical recognition, which I think is a shame. And that certainly goes against what I see as history, which is history from below, writing the history of ordinary people, um, even if it's in extraordinary times. Um, and I think that's perfectly valid. Um, and it's important to kind of say, well, okay, on the surface, they might look like they're living these boring lives, but, you know, what would their feelings have been? Um, why were there seven generations of agricultural labourers, but then someone moved to the towns, you know, what that would have been bound up with a whole set of, of, of emotions. Um, you know, the, the dullness of rural, oh, again, we're projecting now, the dullness <laughs> of rural life, boring, you know, the acedia of rural life, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I think it, it's, it, yeah, it's worth pursuing. But, it, but it's it's difficult and it's okay to kind of go, you know, this is provisional. We don't necessarily know. Um, and I might be pro projecting, but we're, you know, we are human just as people were in the past as they are today. Yeah, I think that's what I find the most interesting about history, actually, is that yeah. idea that we're just as human in the past, but, but, but different, you know, I think that's... Yeah, a, I think anything yeah. that allows us to kind of explore that condition of what it means to be human, past and present, you know, is to be celebrated, really, even yeah, if it I is agree. ordinariness, yeah. <laughs> Celebrate our ordinariness. <laughs> Whatever that means, you know. You know. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'm just conscious that we are coming towards the end of our time, so I just wanted to say to anybody listening, if you do have any questions, please do um, feel free to pop in the chat. Um, so what do you, what, like, do you have, like, what's been your kind of favourite thing, do you think, or favourite, what's kind of really captured you the most about exploring this, this history of emotions and kind of falling into it? <laughs> I think for me, um, it has been that the creative response of ordinary people who who've been told, "Ooh, you're unfeeling, or you're a creature of your feelings, so therefore you're not a full citizen." I think it's the creative response I've seen to that, where working people demonstrate that they are refined, and the way that they do that is to show that they're capable of of these noble feelings as well, as well as negative feelings. Um, so what a surprise that a significant part of being a Chartist for some people was writing Chartist poetry. And indeed, there's a column in the in the Chartist newspaper devoted to poetry, um, because, again, obviously, working class people have been told, oh, poetry is not for you. You've not got the education for that. You, you can't explore those kinds of feelings. And well, here you go. It might not be brilliant poetry whatever that again whatever that means those cultural kind of standards but so yeah it's that creative response that uh, has really kind of captured 
my mind and and yeah just the I think some of them really do go for it and it's the characters that have really gone for it in terms of i'm just going to give my emotions free reign here or what appears to be free reign um that my favorite ones are um two sort of bizarre characters who are tory and radical um, richard osler and joseph rayner stevens who make a career for about five years out of just haranguing audiences but more than that and that's how the elite see them more than that um they say working people are, are people of feeling and there's a whole series of changes going on around us that are not recognizing that and i see it as my job to to stand up and give vent to those feelings um and by extension to show that ordinary people um are refined and yeah, there's some great kind of stories of, oh, went to work this morning, saw Raina Stevens kind of haranguing in the marketplace. Came home uh, seven hours later, Raina Stevens was still haranguing in the marketplace. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's, so, yeah, the way the elite obviously see them is to go, ooh, creatures of passion, they're dangerous. But they're actually doing something much more sophisticated than that, I think. Uh, and again, it, it goes so the opposite of what I said at the start. When people claim to do things in the name of reason, there's usually emotion behind it. Similarly, when people do things that look really um, emotional, there is a kind of logic to that and rationality. Oftentimes, not saying always, particularly in the public sphere, that's what interests me. I, I don't think any intervention in the public sphere is um, instinctive. Sometimes people might make it look instinctive, but it's always calculated, um, whether that's claims of rationality or what looks like, you know, unbridled kind of feeling boiling over here. I mean, look at Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, I was always struck by how his sort of natural posture in public was always to be angry. Um, now, not, I'm not saying that was disingenuous of him. I think he probably was generally angry. That was a large part of his politics. But... Um, no one would say, well, apart from his political enemies, that this was just a sort of tirade of passion that was coming out. It was a carefully crafted, um, reasoned feeling, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that, that's a really interesting po point, actually, that, um, that that people could be not necessarily putting on their emotions, but tapping into one of them. Uh, yeah. deliberately to to create a persona for a particular reason or to to emphasize something um yeah 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 even if it's just charisma you know yeah 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 <laughs> um, yeah. yeah so um oh i had a question then it just popped out of my head so w when you're talking about the long 19th century what can you give any examples of what the kind of acceptable emotions were so we've talked a lot about kind of well firstly and honor and... it depends who you are okay I think you can get away with a lot more if you are an elite person. Well, let's qualify that further. If you're an elite man, um, you can get away with um, a lot more. And you can also be more judgmental about others. You know, you're, you're, you're irrational, that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, I think it probably does also depend when you're talking about. So in the probably first 30 or 40 years of the 19th century there's a lot of emotion around romanticism is at its peak not just within um in the arts 
thinking back to that brilliant essay by Isaiah Berlin, where he says the thing about romanticism is this was one of the few moments in history where art exercised a tyranny over everything. So intense feelings were everywhere. Uh, politics, you know, society, literature, yes, but beyond that. But then, you know, you fast forward to the mid-19th century when there's a reaction to all of this. And it's back to those cycles again. Um, and a large part of um, being a citizen by the mid-Victorian period was extra exercising restraint. There's a real emphasis put on restraint, and that includes checking your feelings. Um, and oh. I, I haven't followed it further, but there, by the late Victorian period, you get, you get a return to that sort of gothic excess in some ways, Jekyll and Hyde and other sexual anarchy, the rise of the new woman, and all those kinds of things. And I definitely go, you can't think about these things in linear terms. Um, and there's some been really good work done by medieval historians who often don't like the starting point of a lot of modern historians who basically go, so in the medieval period, people were creatures of their passions. But as we modernized ourselves and became rational, you know, so it's, again, it cycles. Oh, it's interesting. I always think of the Victorians as being this, these kind of, um, trying to tightly control their outward appearance but underneath being seething <laughs> bubbling with different emotions um, i don't know yeah. that's like a stereotype but it is does tend to be how i tend to yeah, think and, about and, it. <laughs> and also bearing bear, bear in mind that point we made about neuroplasticity that if you if you feign that for long enough you are going to start and internalize it and believe it and it's going to structure your behavior yeah, I always feel as well for women, um, they're like, especially in the 19th century, they're on this like tightrope of uh, you've got to be feeling enough to be feminine. And, yeah. you know, nobody wants to be called an unfeeling mother, especially yeah. that would be, you know, like the worst one. And then and then but on the other hand, you can't be too feeling because you might slip into being sensual or sexual as well. And then, yeah, so you're on this really tight uh Typewrite. I think that's probably yeah. why I like the Victorians so much. I find that yeah, fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. I've got loads to go away and read now and uh <laughs> learn up nice, more. If nice you if you share. were to recommend like one one starting point or one accessible book or anything that, that people People who are listening to this who think oh, I want to go away and learn a little bit more myself. Um, I know you've got your 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 blog site as well. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'd recommend um, a book by a very good friend of mine. We were at university together. He's now a sort of pioneer in the history of emotions. Um, so not like me, who just sort of nicks their ideas and applies them and goes, "Ooh, this is interesting." You know, he's actually working within history of emotions. And this is um, someone called Rob Bodice, B O D I. C E and he's he's written a number of books, too many books, but the most accessible one is called A History of Feelings um, by Reaction Books, which was his attempt to write a more popular type history um, that not that doesn't dumb down, but it just sort of says let let's stand back from the coal face of academic specialism and sort of take history over the long sweep. So he starts in the classical world and brings it all the way up to the modern. If, if people wanting sort of a bit more of a handbook type approach, then I'd recommend another book by Rob called The History of Emotions, which was published by MUP a couple of years ago. And that's useful if you want to find out about how to do history of emotions. 
you want a sort of nice sort of story about how it can illuminate the past, then his first book I would recommend. But if you want more of a a, a workshop toolkit kind of thing, I'd recommend his his other book. And they're both um, his the MUP book is paperback, so that's pretty affordable. Um, I think I remember seeing tweeted that it was available for ten or fifteen pounds. And then okay. the other one by reaction is hardback, but it, it's pretty reasonably priced as well. Okay, um, brilliant. Thank you. And where can people come and find you if they want to read some more of your work and learn about politics yeah. and emotions? <laughs> so I, that is a very good question, actually. I ha Obviously, I've got a monograph coming out, which is ridiculously expensive and hopefully will be published in paperback, but that, that's never a guarantee. And even when, even if it is, I think the paperback price really is what the hardback price should have been. Um, but yeah, I've got obviously a bit of stuff online, the blogs that you've mentioned. Um, and I'm trying to think if I've got something that's open access. Um, yeah, actually, people might be interested in this. So I'm part of a group of historians called the Society for Study, the Society for the Study of Labour History. SSLH and my friend Mark Crail runs a blog post part of that and I, I wrote an article there on that might be the one you're referring to earlier it might on be, actually yeah um that that's that's probably far more lucid than my ramblings this evening <laughs> it is it is uh, late <laughs> yeah. right, I will make sure that all of those um resources and links um are put onto the the website so um so if you're listening to this after what are we tuesday mm. the what date is it 22nd 22nd <laughs> yeah. so if you're listening to this after tuesday 22nd if you're listening to it by the friday then there'll be the the blog post will be up at www.genealogystories.co.uk um with all the resources um that that we've mentioned but yeah thank you ever so much mark uh mark that's because we were just talking about mark talking matthew about mark, yeah my yeah. pleasure i've interviewed mark as well that's why so it just slipped back in time there <laughs> Yeah, no thank you very much, Matthew. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. I will hit the M broadcast button and it will always do that awkward thing where it freezes and we're sat there with a static smile and I make this joke every other Tuesday. I was probably sick of hearing it. <laughs> All right. See you later.